I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, everyone. I'm Merve Emre. Thank you for joining us tonight. It is an absolute joy to be here with Sheila Hetty, whose novel Pure Color was released on Tuesday. In our conversation tonight, we'll go back and forth between having Sheila read short excerpts from the novel and then discussing them. Many of you know Sheila Hetty as the author of four works of fiction, including How Should a Person Be and Motherhood, two wonderful children's books and two collaborative works, and a play called All Our Happy Days Are Stupid, which I remember seeing at the kitchen in New York in 2015 and laughing a lot. She's a gifted literary critic and essayist who has written very absorbing pieces on Fleur Yegi and Tove Jansson. But I think of her often as the person who, out of pure kindness and generosity, once gifted me this wonderfully cluttered and utterly random anthology called Character Writings of the 17th Century, with little vignettes of men and women of distinctive qualities and manners. I was turning through it today, uh, thinking about how on the second page of her novel, Pure Color, which begins with the creation of the universe, God manifests himself as three different types of art critic, a large bird who critiques from above, a large fish who critiques from the middle, and a large bear who critiques while cradling in its arms. And I stopped on Samuel Butler's description of the modern critic because I wanted to mark the difference between Sheila's cosmos and the world that many other people live in or want critics to live in. This is Samuel Butler's modern critic. He is a mountebank that is always quacking of the infirm and diseased parts of books to show his skill, but has nothing at all to do with the sound. He is a very ungentle reader, for he reads sentences on all authors that have the unhappiness to come before him. And therefore, pedants complain sorely of his extrajudicial proceedings and protest against him as corrupt and his judgment void and of no effect, and put themselves in the protection of some powerful patron who, like a knight errant, is to encounter with the magician and free them from his enchantments. And I like to think that the world of art and of critique that pure color creates 
the forms of inquiry and dialogue that it stages frees us from the modern critic by casting a different kind of spell over us. So thank you for this book, Sheila, and thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for that wonderful, beautiful introduction. Uh, well, as you know, you were in Toronto. I interviewed you for your last book and um, the personality types, I think, are something that interests both of us. This idea of cataloging and distinguishing people from one another based and, and it's it's kind of ridiculous um, right. and so satisfying and delicious at the same time. So I, I was actually wondering if we could start on page four right. of the novel with you doing a little reading from the section where you describe these different kinds of art critic. Okay. People born from the bird egg are interested in beauty, order, harmony, and meaning. They look at nature from on high in an abstracted way and consider the world as if from a distance. These people are like birds soaring, flighty, fragile, and strong. People born from a fish egg appear in a flotation of jelly, and this jelly contains hundreds of thousands of eggs, where the most important thing is not any individual egg, but the condition of the many. For the fish, it's less any one individual egg that concerns them than that the eggs are laid in the best conditions, where the temperature is most right and the current most gentle, so the majority might survive. For fish, it's the collective conditions that count. A person hatched from a fish egg is concerned with fairness and justice here on Earth, and humanity getting the temperature right for the many. 1,000 eggs are the concern of a fish, whereas the person hatched from the egg of a bear clutches one special person close, as close as they possibly can. A person born from a bear egg is like a child holding on to their very best doll. Bears do not have a pragmatic way of thinking in which their favorites can be sacrificed for some higher end. They are deeply consumed with their own. Bears claim a few people to love and protect and feel untroubled by their choice. They are turned towards those they can smell and touch. People born from these three different eggs will never completely understand each other. They will always think that those born from a different egg have their priorities all wrong. But fish, birds, and bears are all equally important in the eye of God. And it wouldn't be a better world if there were only fish in it. And it wouldn't be a better world if there were only bears. God needs creation critiqued by all three. But here on Earth, it is hard to believe it. Fish find the concerns of the birds superficial, while birds are made impatient by the critiques of the fish. Nothing makes a person feel like their life's work or their self is less seen than when it's being judged by someone from a different egg. Yet birds should be grateful that someone is making the structural critique so they don't have to. And a fish should be grateful that someone is making the aesthetic critique so they can focus on the structural one. Thank you. I'm, I'm so struck by that line, God needs creation critiqued by all three, because it made me think of this moment in your previous novel, In Motherhood, where your narrator asks the coin whether God pays attention to what's in God's house. Right. And the answer is no in that case. And right. I was thinking, what's the difference between living in a world where God needs creation critiqued versus where God is indifferent to his own creation? I mean, the difference is comes down to where I, how I felt existentially probably in writing these two books. I mean, that's the difference. Mm -hmm. And in writing motherhood, it was a time of complete confusion 
um, and a lack of clarity. And so if I couldn't see what was in my house, how could God see what was in God's house? And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it was the coins that said no. The coins could have said yes. So I'm just extrapolating from what the coins said. But um, in terms of this book, you know, I was writing it in part during the Trump years where the idea of being an artist seemed very um, frivolous to lots of people. And I felt very, um, I mean, I live in Canada, but many of my friends are American. I felt very opposed to that, that idea that the artist had, that art, that the artist had to take a back seat to, to the, the political self. The artistic self had to take a back seat to the political self. It seemed to me that that was wrong. And I think part of writing this taxonomy was a way of reinserting, you know, forever and for all time, the artist into society as an important and as important a force as the the political uh, creature and and the bare intimate family focused creature. I mean, we just joked a moment earlier about how these taxonomies are both ridiculous and also delicious, which raises the same question that talking about anybody's type raises, which is which one are you or what do you identify with? Or are there different moments where you feel yourself part bear, part fish, part... (laughs) bird i wish i mean i think i'm just a pure bird i i i aspire to all those other fishy and like bird uh, bear bearish qualities i feel like my my partner my boyfriend is like a good dose of all three but i i'm like a helplessly bird um what did, which one did you feel you were i don't know i mean this is always the problem when you come up against these types right is you want to argue against the distinction in the first place and you want to say well it's perfectly possible to critique both the aesthetic and the political at the same time and to do it in a kind of loving bearish way but then you don't identify the same with all of those descriptions right so yeah my 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 friend margo williamson the painter that i wrote about how should a person be i mean she's a painter but i would say she's a fish like everything you know she's a a fish who unfortunately happens to have unfortunately to herself happens to have great artistic talent but (laughs) but but completely thinks that the most important thing that she could ever do would be political work so i think anyways it's a type system you know like you say it's (laughs) i was i was surprised to hear you you talk about the kind of immediate political backdrop against which this book was started. And I, I want to hear you say more about that, because I was very ready to take it as a, a like fabular creation myth that was, in fact, trying to be like very purposefully trying to be removed from right. our immediate history. So uh, particularly in all the places that it talks about, you know, not having access to social media, different kinds of communication technology. So can you just say a little bit more about how that played into into the work as you were putting it together? Yeah, I mean, I think that ultimately you want to transform those of the moment things into something that could be eternal, that could be true for all time, that could make sense in 100 years or 500 years in the past. Or, you know, you don't want it to, to just um, only. But and I, and I, but I thought that transformation could sort of make sense in some sense for all time that there 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 are these kinds of orientations to the world that I don't know I I always want to make something I always want to even like from my first book I never want to say Coca-Cola I never wanted to say I never want to be too specific in time or place um, because it seemed to me I just feel like that kind of stuff is very very 
alienating for people that don't get the reference. And I, I always felt like I was somebody who didn't get the reference. And, you know, my parents are immigrants and, and like my parents never got the reference. Like I had Charlie Brown, like a, a picture of Charlie Brown on my fridge. And my mother came into the, my kitchen a few years ago and said, who's that nice boy? You know, so I don't even want that. So it just seems to me like a kind of uh, inclusive democratic desire to like not, yeah, not alienate those who don't get the reference. My my parents are immigrants too, and I played Snoopy in my fourth grade school play. So <laughs> they just thought it was a dog. Right. <laughs> <They did. laughs> um, okay, can I ask you to read a second a second section? And it is when we have your main character Mira, mm-hmm. who sitting in the lamp store okay. that she was in. Mira would sit in the lamp store. Oh, and I should say this takes place in sort of the before the internet times. Mira would sit in the lamp store and gaze at one lamp in particular. It had green blobs and red blobs, little polished stones of colored glass that were held together by a network of iron. The shade was a half oval with a beautiful iron stand. It was the most wonderful thing Mira had ever seen. She would sit and wait for the day to turn dark when she could turn off every other lamp and stare at her favorite, with its translucent stones illuminated from within. She would spin this shade so gently and its colored light would fall on the walls and her. Since the lamp she liked best was the least expensive one, it was possible that one day she might own it if no one bought it first. Perhaps the fact that it was the least expensive one was the reason she had made it her favorite. There's no point in loving something that is not a bit within reach. It was the essential humility of the lamp that drew her to it. It had not been made by someone with any sort of insight into how a person might want to appear to others or who believed that people acquired things to show them off to their friends. It had not been made by someone who imagined that an object fit into a greater system of values or could place its owner among others with similar taste. It had been made by a humble person who simply thought, now I will make my next lamp. Whenever Mira came in for her shift, the first thing she did was look to see if the lamp was still there. It always was. She guessed that her boss must know how much she liked it, although she never asked. Probably every employee had their favorite lamp. The the subplot of Mira and the lamp is is one of my favorite subplots that runs through this novel. And in the section that you just read, I love so much the way that both Mira and your writing model a kind of attention that we might pay to beautiful things or to beautiful objects and how we might see them on their own terms. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about paying attention to things? Because it almost seems to invite the the divine in, like there's a sense of plenitude that emerges in this passage. And I really, really love that. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I don't quite have. I mean, I, I'm right now in Montreal at my brother's house and him and his partner have a very, she's Russian and she grew up in Russia um, as a kind of respect for objects. And so, you know, that, that I don't have growing up in this time and place. So their daughter wears the thing, the, the sweater that she wore when she was a child because her mother kept it. Like there's, there's nothing disposable about things. And they take a long time. They take a year to decide what table to buy. You know, whereas me, I'm always ordering stuff, sending it back. Like it's meaningless to me. So this this description of Mira is sort of a aspirational thing for me, um, because I 
I don't have that relationship to the world of things. I wish I did. Yeah, but, but do, you, I, do you have that relationship to the world of art? Like when you look at a painting, for instance, or when you read a novel, just having read your essays and having read you writing on art, I, I do think you have that relationship to artworks, if not to things, but maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah. yeah, I think art is a place for me to slow down. And it's not involved, it, there's nothing, it's not consumption based. I mean, I order a lot of books, I buy a lot of books, um, but it, you know, with visual arts, certainly I don't, <laughs> I can't afford that kind of hobby. So it never, it's, it's never about possessing. And I think if something's not about possessing and it's not about the chase and it's not about making it your own, then yeah, you can have a different sort of relationship to it. That's more about what it, what it is rather than what it can do for you as a person in the world among people, you know, it, it can't become something that is like appropriated for status or for, um, yeah, for anything really. Is there an analogy there to how we look at or maybe should look at other people without that desire to possess or that ability to take them on their own terms, which seems to be another kind of subplot that's running through the, through the novel? Yeah, I think that I'm, I think I'm not a very judgmental person. I sort of like people as examples of themselves. You know, mm -hmm. like it never seems to me like somebody is living wrong or acting wrong or it, everyone just seems to me like the you, you're like the perfect Mervé Emery. Like, you know what I mean? Um, it, it just seems to me. Yes, and I, I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and yeah, I don't know. It's it seems important to like take people as they are and not and, and, and not see them with this like shadow stealth that they could potentially be. Um, I don't really believe there is some, some like shadowy self that they, that they're failing to manifest, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, but this is what I think. I mean, this is what I get out of reading your novels is the sense that there's a kind of tension between being a, a, an utterly singular person in the world, being the perfect Sheila Hetty, right. And then, being part of the spirit of the world, being part of the soul of time, as you call it, in motherhood. And that part of figuring out how to be in the world is always negotiating between that sense of, of singleness and yeah. that, that kind of communal being. Is that, is that something important for you, like existentially or philosophically? Is that an important question for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the individualness is a burden. I think it's a pleasure for the people that experience you, but it's a burden for the experiencing person. I mean, having to wear one's personality is sort of wacky. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's a drag and it's a, like, it's a performance that can never end. And even if you're trying not to perform it, you're performing it in some way. And it's, it, it's a barrier, you know, it's, it's all, it's our pride and it prevents intimacy and, and it, prevents us from being humble, as, as sufficiently humble as we should be. It's all those terrible things. But other people can take pleasure in the personalities of other people. So it, it has a value to others, if not to the self. I think so. So, so on, the, on the one hand, in pure color, there's this move toward a second draft of the universe in which, you know, there's a kind of utopian promise of what that second draft might be. On the other hand, there's a kind of counter move or, or, or maybe a suggestion that like we're all of us only to learn how to attend, how to pay attention to people, to things, to the world with that kind of framework that you're outlining, with that kind of 
attention to singleness, then maybe we wouldn't need a second draft. Yeah, I think um, you're right. <laughs> Well, and and I'm and I'm I'm wondering if for you uh, we do need a second draft. Like, do we? You know, is that is that kind of a a joke in the novel? And the real work of the novel is kind of training ourselves to think about the things in our first draft better. I think so. I mean, and I think also the fact that God is an artist who is dissatisfied with what he made and wants to redo it is also like a joke on the art critics who come to criticize the book. And the joke is, well, of course, of course it's not as it should be. Of course it's not as good as it needs to be. And yet to like remind the critics that, that there's a certain vitality in that imperfection. And I, I think there's different ways of doing criticism and the way of doing criticism in which you're looking for the perfect form will just result in the destruction of all the artworks that you encounter because you know, and on the other hand, how do you value like the singularity and the strangeness and the the offness of whatever it is you're encountering? Right. What standards do we judge against if you take everything on its own terms? Right. right. Do you think about like literary criticism the same way? I mean, just to take a really obvious example, like when you read reviews of your own novels, does that same thinking about how people judge or how they ought not to judge operate for you? Or is this particular to visual art? Oh, no. I mean, I wrote, I started writing this book in early 2018, which was right when Motherhood came out. And I was getting reviews and getting very negative reviews for that book by a lot of very intellectual women. And it was very, I was stunned. <laughs> I had no idea that I, that that would be, that there, it would be taken that it would be taken in the ways that it was taken. And part of writing this book and wanting to think about art criticism, which to me, art criticism and literary criticism are the same thing. Part of wanting to think about was that all that was about that subject was to think about the reviews that I was getting and to understand, well, why is this happening? And how can I value it rather than despair or just have that reflex reaction of, well, they're idiots. You know, like I didn't, that's not the re reaction that I want to have. I, I want to think, well, what is this impulse that we have to want to redo the work of somebody else or this impulse that we have to say that the work of somebody else is, is doing something that that person doesn't think it's doing? Just all these. I don't know. It's a very it's a very strange place. It's a very strange kind of communication from the critic to the artist. And so I was like, well, what's the best what's the best way to you know, conceptualize this? And the idea that we're the critics of God we're here to criticize and that we don't actually enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's the solution I came to. We don't enjoy it, but we wouldn't be human without it and and the world and there would be no Yeah, I just think it's it's very deeply linked to who we are. I mean, it's it's just so deeply linked to the process of thinking of just being a person who who thinks. Well, why does it have to be linked to yeah, I mean, why does it have to go in that direction? Yeah. To revise what one encounters. Yeah, well, I suppose it depends whether you think of criticism as being a form of destruction. I mean, the way that you're framing it, and I think the way you're describing the reaction to the reviews, I, I understand. I've had that. I've had a similar reaction uh, myself, but at at various points, you know. I suppose another way to think about criticism is as making the object anew, or showing it differently in a different. Kind of like turning like like I imagine it as, you know, that that lamp in, in Mira's shop. That's her favorite. What if you turned it to a different kind of light? Yeah. And then yeah. maybe it's 
a different sort of object, right? Yeah, I think that's probably the the best thing that criticism can do. And that's what a novel, that's the kind of criticism a novel is, right? Like a novel mm-hmm. is that kind of criticism. It's like making mm-hmm. use of the world in a new way. Um, oh, that's so interesting. Okay, so so do you think of the novel as, you think of the novel as doing criticism? I think every novel is doing criticism. Yeah, I think so. Okay. okay. Because you're trying to reframe human life. Like you say, turn the lamp. Well, I, I mean, I think that's very, it's very interesting to me to hear you formulate it like that. I mean, the other thing that I think this novel is doing and that, and that motherhood is also doing to a certain extent in trying to figure out how to navigate between sort of singular people and this like larger fabric of being is to, is to figure out what it is exactly that runs through all of us. And you have this really lovely moment toward the end of the novel where you describe, I think you say it's the loving part that's the least individual thing about us. And there are these moments in pure color where it seems like the novel is not being narrated by a person, but it's being narrated by that loving part. Like it's become kind of depersonalized in the way. And I'm wondering how you think about making those moves where we go from what feels like a, a narrator, sort of contained, bounded person speaking, to what feels much more like a spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah. In motherhood are a spirit, you know, the spirit of randomness, let's say, speaking, and that's not me. I enabled it, but that those are not my answers. And I think that there's a, you're right, there's the same thing. That's interesting. There's the same thing in this book in some way. It's not coins. It, It was obviously me writing it. And I don't want to say that it came from, God or anything like that, but I, I feel like I did write a, I, I did write a lot of this stuff in a way that was surprising to me when it came out, and I had no I have no information around it. Like I have no extra information that's not in the book. So I had at one point this desire to make the book longer, and I thought, but I don't know anything else. Everything that I know it, as pertains to this book is in the book, and anything else I put in, I would be making it up. And everything that's in the book felt like it wasn't something that I made up. It was something I found, um, mm. let's say. Um, yeah, so so in that sense, yeah, maybe there is this, like, the loving part, the, something that's not quite exactly the ego or the, like, the, the creative ego that where those ideas came from. I don't know, the unconscious. I don't know, God. Or that, like, what novels do is that they actually produce their own forms of, of getting that kind of exceed the people who are writing them and the people who are reading them. Can we, can you read uh, page 96 to 98? Because I think this connects. Yeah. I think you're right that novels do create novel. A novel is its own like intelligence. It's its own brain apart from your brain. Um, I agree. So here she is in the leaf after her father died. You were supposed to have a secret wish to get you where you wanted to go. She also had a secret wish but it had been such a secret that she didn't know what its words would be. She only knew what it felt like. The secret wish turned out to be leaf. Everything she had wanted came down to leaf and she hadn't even known it. As a leaf, she finally found her right dimensions and soon enough she adapted to them as she had never adapted to her dimensions in life. The problem in life had always been that she wanted to be bigger but didn't know how. She could not adapt to her right size. She didn't even know what her right size was. 
But there, under the golden sun, she finally found out. It was the size of a leaf. If she had been told this when she was a child, she could have adapted to it and led a simple life of little striving and been happy, rather than hoping and attending school. But the love of her father had made her think she was great, as giant as the universe, and that other people should know it. What had she accomplished with all her ambition to prove his beliefs about her right? Instead, she might have been content with choosing one person to love and living with them simply, someone who was also the size of a leaf rather than the size of the shore. Perhaps this was where she had gone wrong, in thinking she could be the size of a shore and letting her father hope that for her, rather than telling him no. He had been so excited, encouraging her in his certainty that she was the size of the shore or could be. He had expended so much energy on her, and what had that gotten him in return? She had gone into the world without him, thinking she could achieve it, but she had achieved only a strange distance from this person she loved. If she had known she was the size of a leaf, she would not have bothered with those aspirations. She would have done her best to remain small. She hadn't known that plants were the grateful recipients of all consciousness, not only of people, but of snails and squirrels and the sun and the rain, that it was their generosity that made them so lush and green, the very color of welcome. Was every tree so peppered with the consciousnesses of snails and people and flies and bees? And what will happen to her in the autumn? Is that when she will really be dead? No, perhaps then she'll retreat into the trunk of the tree. Perhaps that's what makes trees so magnificent, that as generous and accepting as their leaves are, their trunk is even more accepting. It welcomes one and all. Then the tree will let her slip out again, back through its branches as it buds in the spring. But what if the tree is cut down? Perhaps she'll go into the next tree, then she'll go into the next one, and she'll keep on going into the soil or whatever's left, particles from a distant sun. It reminded me, these three pages just reminded me of so many things. The first is this line from Juno Barnes's Nightwood. I don't know if you've read it. It's one of, yeah, it's one of my favorite novels. And it has this great line in it where Dr. Matthew O'Connor is speaking and he says, we all love in sizes. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And this idea in those first two pages that you read that we have to, that or Mira's sort of fantasy of adapting to the right size to encounter a certain kind of love was uh, just very, very moving to me. And I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about the scale or the dimension at which we feel things for people or the scale or dimension at which we spread ourselves out into the world that makes it harder for us to feel things for people that are particularly close or particularly intimate to us. Yeah, it's always hard to answer this question of size and proximity and how much space a person needs around one mm -hmm. and how much space you need around you in order to love somebody else. Yeah, and, and are you supposed to be big in life or small? And what do those words mean? And, you know, part of that passage for me is really also about ambition, like this, the exhaustion of ambition. I, I'm sure not every person feels this way, but I certainly felt um, a pressure to be great. And maybe that's wonderful for a woman, especially in our time, to feel that sort of pressure. And yet, and on the other hand, for any human to feel that sort of pressure is is kind of silly. Like, you know, great for for what? <laughs> or for, yeah, for what? Yeah, all those questions. Well, you have this 
really lovely moment in motherhood where you describe the difference between your narrator's faith and another character's faith. I can't remember which character now, but you describe it in terms of what we choose to spread. Oh, yes. And, and yeah, yeah. And and I was and it made me th- this passage made me think of that moment, because there is this sense that if you spread yourself, your words, which which are, I think, an extension of your singular being, if yeah. you spread it too far, people stop thinking of you as 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 human sometimes, I think. Yeah. There's something strange that happens to the, you know, to use your terms, there's something strange that happens to the great person yeah. or to the ambitious person. I don't know if if you feel like you've had that experience after, you know, writing these wildly successful books and having them read in the in the wrong ways. <laughs> um, yeah, you dilute yourself into the world or something like that. I think that's right. Uh, there's a the kind of emptying out into the world. And yet at the same time, you know, you know, I feel like I was told to be great, you know, and but I also feel like art is a genuinely art for me making it is the only way that I can really encounter the world. So that is in conflict with this desire, this egoistic, you know, this, this ambition to be great is in conflict with the very sincere childlike impulse to make something. I guess it's in negotiating those that sort of the trickiness of being an adult artist lies. You have to stay as <laughs> hundred percent wholly close to that original making lust (laughs) and then also like so and then what and then have also a relationship to being in the world because I think that the world it's an interesting thing with Ferrante like sort of disappearing but I'm interested in appearing and I, I think that there's some there's also a lot of value in appearing you know and I don't really exactly know what that is but I think it has to do with conversation and encountering other people. And and in some ways, it's more godlike to disappear and more humble to appear, even if it could seem more great and egotistical to appear. In some ways, it's actually more it's the opposite, weirdly. No, I, I, I agree entirely. And I think that what pure color does or where that appearance or that sort of being in the world feels most apparent to me is when these sections where you narrate Mira in the leaf are interspersed with the dialogue that's taking place in that leaf and a dialogue that doesn't belong to anybody. It's not attached to anyone. It is pure presence. It's people making themselves available or thought making itself available without being attached to any person. Can I ask a very prosaic, a very kind of stupid, stupid question? Why a leaf? Why didn't she end up in a stick or <laughs> or a table or a I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't remember how that image came to me. And I actually had a friend who's in the audience tonight say, like, a leaf is too small. And, and <laughs> I was like, I don't know what to do. I mean, it has to be a leaf. And I don't, but I don't remember writing that part. So. But it just feels right somehow. I mean, I there's this, um, you know, it kept making me think about this really the series of moments in Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, where Clarissa Dalloway imagines her spirit extending through the trees and the leaves. 
Hmm. And Stephanie Smith, similarly, when he's sitting in Regent's Park, sees the light through the leaves and they seem to be beckoning to him. Uh, so this fascination with the leaf as being the object that receives human consciousness or is like receptive to human consciousness uh, is one that I think appeals to lots of different writers and lots of different artists. And so I'm, I'm just fascinated by, and maybe you're right, maybe it has something to do with color and scale and, and those all come together to create this sense of, of invitation or of welcoming. I yeah, and then also maybe, I mean, in retrospect, like something about the way that the leaves fall off, you know, but then they would come back again. I mean, that sort of feels like every day or, you know, if you're in a fight with somebody, you know, there's always I, Esther Perel has this quote that I love um, about um, how every relationship is about harmony, disharmony and repair. And that's the cycle. Constant harmony, disharmony, repair, harmony, disharmony, repair. And there's something about the leaf that's sort of is evidence of that, at least if you live in a country where there's a winter, you know? Yeah, no, so like, I Come and go and come and go. I don't know. I there's remember. A I too, but like, a, the, but there's a regeneration too. Yeah. I was just thinking about how I no longer live in a country with a proper winter and I, <laughs> I miss the Montreal, I miss the Montreal season sometimes. Um, were, are you, you know, I was, like just one other kind of uh, maybe annoying referential question, which is the other person that I kept thinking of, the, the other writer I kept thinking of when I was reading this, the the, the leaf section, uh, particularly when you talk about the lake, the surface of the lake as being a giant watery eyeball, was mm -hmm. I kept thinking about Emerson and I kept thinking about the transcendentalists and how much there is a kind of transcendentalist imagination that's operating throughout pure color in 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 believing that we can be both individual but that that individuality can be communally constructed and i'm 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 just wondering if there are particular kind of strands of religious theological or even philosophical thought that are particularly influential that that influenced you in particular when you were when you were writing that i don't think when i was writing it i mean i can i can cite everything that i I mean, everything that I had read up to that point, I'm sure, went into this book. Um, but I wasn't doing a lot of, I know, the only book really that I remember reading during this time very vividly was Crime and Punishment. And um, that has nothing to do with my book at all. <laughs> no. um, but that was the book that, like, was the most close to my heart during this time. I think really I had never felt so close to nature as when I was writing this in my whole entire life as the years that I was writing this book. And so whatever um, transcendental wisdom is in the book would have come from just really viscerally, like really feeling the world, you know, the, the, the breeze and, and just like feeling outside of culture in some kind of way that I'd never felt before. I'll ask one last question and then we can turn it over to the Q and a, you know, I share your frustrations with a lot of the reviews of motherhood in part because I read these two novels and maybe it's just me, but I, I read them as a kind of diptych. Uh, and actually in the way these covers have been presented makes them. Totally. Makes them <laughs> yeah. And rereading them both last night. And then again, this morning, I felt like what I was being offered was a theology of daughterhood not of motherhood, but of, of, of daughterhood, yeah. which is, you know, from a biblical perspective is rooted in these ideas, these paired ideas of grace and of lament. And 
it, it made me wonder, you know, what does it mean to be an adult daughter? And, and, and how does one continue to be a daughter even if your parents are no longer available to you, if they're no longer around? And I was wondering if you had thoughts on that, on the idea of daughterhood as being, to, to my mind, kind of like the, the, the missing word that, that knits right. these novels together so, so tightly or hinges them together. Well, I don't know if this is correct, um, but your question just made me think of it for the first time. And I don't think this is a religious answer, but it, it's the answer that comes to me. It's like the daughter is the one that mourns and daughterhood in some sense is a position of the mourner. And I don't know why, but I mean, I suppose that you're available to do those family duties that have a kind of spiritual content to them that are about remembrance and are about lineage and like passing down traditions in some way. But there's also a kind of stillness to them and a kind of inwardness that I associate with the feminine. And I think they're both kind of books of mourning in some way, like in motherhood, mourning this self that one wishes they could be but can't be, which is the mother. But and also the mourning that has to do with the sadness of the protagonist's mother and her grandmother was in Auschwitz. And just like the mourning for like a lack of access to a female intellectual tradition that has these questions at their center. And then this book is just like a more direct expression of of the loss, an actual loss of a person that one loved. And how do you like make that mourning something beautiful and how not to just have it be grief, but have it be expansive and yeah, beautiful, meaningful. Yeah, you describe it as alchemical yeah. in motherhood that mm -hmm. you might, well, in, that the narrator might take her mother's suffering and turn it or her tears and her mother's tears and turn them into words. And yeah. that, that would then turn into gold, a kind of alchemical transformation of emotion into something else, a way of manifesting it in the in the world. And that's a fable-like kind of image, spinning something to gold, spinning straw into gold. Isn't that Rumpelstiltskin? It's Rumpelstiltskin, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And when when the queen guesses his name, he stamps his foot so hard, he tears himself right in half and disappears. And wow, he, yeah. <laughs> he, he's no more. I've, I've read it a lot recently. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Uh, David, uh, Anton and David, oh, we have a double question. How exciting. Anton and David ask, I find it so interesting that there has been a reappraisal about matters religious in art recently as a potentially expansive thing, as opposed to the official religious discourse vis-a-vis uh, -vis the evangelical political right. Judaism has been a significant strand in your last two books. This book includes God as a main character. Could you talk a bit about religion and God in your work and in your life? I mean, there's there's not much relationship between them in my life and in my work. Like in my life, I'm completely uninterested in the question of God. It's not something that I think about very much. Um, it's I don't go to synagogue. Uh, I was raised by extremely atheist parents. So, but when I come to write, it makes sense to me the idea of God. It makes sense to me as a as really the most beautiful thing you can think about and to reimagine it in a way that's outside of any kind of deeply punishing traditions. Yeah, so it, it's, it seems to come up. And I think if you're somebody who's creating something, the ideas of God come, come quickly to you because that's what you're, you're being a God. You know, you're creating a, a little universe within the universe. So it's a very present idea. Some novelist gods are more punishing than others, though. <laughs> They're fun to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Amy asks, I found reading pure color so chewy at an ideas level, like the pleasure of reading was in cahoots with the challenge it posed to my brain on a philosophical level. Motherhood had a similar impact. It made me wonder what it would be like to read philosophy from you. Does that appeal? If yes or no, why? I mean, I think this is the way that I could write philosophy is in, in a novel form. I think that I want the ideas to be embedded in character and scene and relationships. And yeah, I, I, I can't imagine writing philosophy in a more directly, in a more direct way because those ideas come out of living and are in response to living and are for living. So, not to say that philosophers don't write their philosophical ideas in response to it, but it comes just from their brain. I like dialogue. I guess I just like dialogue. Yeah. And I guess yeah, like no. the Socratic dialogues, I mean, dialogue is like a, a fundamental philosophical form. I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think the books are philosophy in some way and novel and novels too. I like stories. I like storytelling. I think, I think what you said about dialogue is, is, is correct. And I, I think one of the things that characterizes so many of the contemporary novels that I like is that they find ways to stage dialogue or to stage the dialogic without it actually just being two people talking to each other. Yeah. Find ways to model that that aren't just direct conversation or direct discourse. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about the Rachel Cusk trilogy. I was about, yeah, I was just thinking about Cusk too. Yeah. It's a recounting um, of, of conversations remembered. Um, in, in those cases. Yeah, because then dialogue becomes filtered through something else, right? You don't get it directly. It's filtered through the kind of narrating consciousness, and you're not quite sure where that exists. Yeah, um, I think like, yeah, okay, anyways, moving on. Yeah, <laughs> so much to say in response to that, but I'll, 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 I'll hold it. Peter asks, Sheila, I trust your book recommendation so much. Who should we be reading right now? Who are you reading right now? I mean, I just bought a whole bunch of books, one called Reality Plus, which is by David J. Shields. something. Not David Shields, no. 
no, no, no. It's no. he's a philosopher, and it's about the uh, it's about the like the idea of that we are living in a simulation. But it looks at it from a philosophical point of view, and it. it um, I don't know. I mean, Ellis Batman's new book, Either Or, is the last thing that I read that I really loved. It's hilarious. It's yeah, so great. It's one of my favorite of her books. It's it's so interesting about heterosexuality and the weirdness of it. And if you don't feel it in your bones, but you feel you have to perform it, it's a great book. I'll, re I'll recommend that one. It's coming out soon. I will second that recommendation. It is a very, and it's a very funny, it's a very, very funny book. I think she's one of the funnier writers that's working today. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Mark asks, I thought that the striking thing about motherhood was the idea that a daughter resembles her mother in the way that the future resembles the past. Is this an answer to Merve's question about what it means to be a daughter? A daughter resembles a mother in the way the future resembles the past. Is this an answer that you, I don't know. I don't know if that's exactly my answer. What do you think, Merve? I, I, I answered. <laughs> answered the question I asked you in my question, which was that, yeah, which, which I um, sort of annoyingly do uh, all the time. But like, to me, the, the idea of daughterhood in those two books is less about replication mm -hmm. or even reproduction and more about the kind of thing that we were talking about novels doing, which is taking a figure like a mother and turning it to a different kind of light. Yeah. And, and maybe I should say that for, for me, at least, it took a really long time, just, you know, speaking very personally, it took a long time to see my mother as an independent being, as something, as, as someone other than my mother. And I think that's the imaginative work that daughterhood asks of you that is very, very, very difficult to perform. And it's it's also the imaginative and existential question that I think is running through motherhood, which is if you create this being, or if you are created by this being, once you expel them or they are expelled from you, how do you see them as something separate? How do you, how do you respect yeah. separateness? I suspect if you can't see your mother as other than your mother, fundamentally, you really can't see anyone as fundamentally separate from you. If your mother is fundamentally someone who's in relation to you and, and, and not her own being, how can you not see everybody else in the world also as re in relation to you sort of as their fundamental, you know, yeah, as, as like the, that, that's their main situation in the world. And yet we almost never make that leap. We never can actually work our way out of that, doing that to other people and our mothers. Yeah, or it requires a kind of dramatic rupture from your mother or your family in order to do that. It requires an act of estrangement or of distancing or something like that to be able to, or death, it requires death to be able to do that in a really, I don't know, concentrated or committed way. And sometimes even death doesn't do it because some right. people right. still have that fantasy that they're in relation to, yeah. Sophie asks, I know both of you live or have lived in Canada and Montreal and Toronto. I'm wondering if you can speak to the art, literary and cultural landscape here. By here, I assume Toronto or Canada, more generally compared to London, New York or other major cities. I, it reminds me, Sheila, of that moment in motherhood where uh, the narrator goes to New York and comes back and smiles. Mm -hmm. I don't like the values you come back with when you go to New York. So. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, I've only really ever lived in Toronto and Montreal. I was only in New York for one summer. So I think you have to be in any place for a much longer period of time in order to like really speak about it. I found I've, I have found Toronto the right place for me to work. I always was worrying about whether Toronto was the right place to be. And it turns out it is for me, though. I don't think I, I, I like being in a city that's uh, a stage. I think that that's hard on me. I don't, I think when I'm, if I was to live in New York or Paris or London, a, a city that's a stage, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I wouldn't feel happy. I like a different sort of atmosphere. What about you? Well, it just made me think that one of the interesting things about teaching at Gill was that we had all of these specialists in Canadian literature, which you wouldn't have anywhere else. Like, you know, at Oxford, we don't have specialists in Canadian literature. And yeah. it made me wonder whether or not you thought of yourself as a Canadian writer. Like if my colleagues at McGill were teaching courses on 20th century, 21st century Canadian fiction, uh, how you would range in there. If you would be there, how how would you, and who else would you range alongside in that kind of a class? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think of myself as an American writer, um, but I don't think I think of myself as a Canadian writer. Just because the Canadian literature I grew up with was so different from the kind of thing that I write. But I see myself as a Canadian person. But a Canadian writer sounds to me some, like something else. Yeah, no, I, I, I was... Yeah. I remember one time being on like Wikipedia looking up Southern Ontario Gothic fiction. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> this, is a, this is a whole different world that I don't that I don't know about. Um, Orla asks, I was interested by the mention of attention, of openness to the divine and to creation and plenitude. It made me think of Simone V's ideas on attention and the tensions she wrote about concerning absence and creation slash decreation. Um, Orla, I will tell you that on my notes, I had written Simone V, absolutely unmixed attention is prayer uh, when I was going to direct Sheila to that section. So we're kind of on the same page there. Uh, has she ever been an influence on your work? I know you mentioned her in the beginning of motherhood when you're supposed to be writing a book about her. So Yeah, I love her. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't love her. You can't really love her because she's here um, and separate from you. But I deeply admire her and am in awe of her. Um, and I, I love how so much of her work comes to us in fragments. I love fragment. I love, and I don't, and I like the fragment that doesn't, didn't want to be a fragment, that wanted to be a whole. Yeah, I mean, she's just um, incredibly profound. There's not a lot of people who take their ideas into their life so far, who are willing to live differently because of what they think and believe. And she's one of the few examples I, I can think of who, are at once incredible writers and how, who have done that. I, I don't even know who else I can think of. Um, no, and, and that question of, I mean, that's why that's why the, the section that I asked you to read about the, the lamp made me think of that moment in the, uh, in the essay she writes. I've written about this and now I'm blanking out on the name on um, instruction to school children with the purpose of, you know, the, the attention essay. <laughs> the name of which I'm completely blanking on now. If someone knows it, can you throw it into the chat so I don't feel embarrassed? Um, I, and, and, and where she talks about what it would mean to empty yourself, not in an active way, but to let yourself be empty and open to receive 
what it is that the objects of the world, what, what is imminent in those in those objects. And there's something about the way that I think just the idea of color is working in this novel that's very close to that idea of attention, that what it might mean to receive green is simply requires receiving it, being receptive to it. Like there aren't really concepts that you can use mm-hmm. to say this is what it means to this is this is what is inherently or imminently green. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't well, know. Maybe I think that's what's nice about making art is you are in that receptive mode when you're making it. You're making something, but you're also receiving something. And that's the the most sublime moments are the ones when you're receiving something. Yeah. And you're emptied out and you're just, yeah. So you're surprised and you feel like you're, you're not, you're not any size. You're not small and you're not big. Okay. Well, speaking of receiving things uh, to our audience, I would like to keep going, but as I told Sheila, I have like, I tested positive for COVID about five minutes before this event started and I'm starting to feel a little bit tired. So I think I'm just going to wrap it up if that's okay with all of you. Uh, You, you, you can't stop me. So I'm just, (laughs) Um, I thought it was a my brain was like it's a pregnancy test Murray just got Murray's pregnant again no no I'm 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 merely I'm infected in a different in a different kind of way Uh, (laughs) but Sheila thank you so 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 much for joining me and for joining all of us tonight Uh, again uh, to everybody thank you for coming Pure Color is available now you can order it from the LRB bookshop or from your independent, your local independent bookstore, uh, Motherhood as well, and How Should a Person Be, which one of my graduate students took, so I cannot display it. (laughs) Uh, But Sheila, congratulations, and have a wonderful night, everybody. Thank you, Marie. Thanks for this wonderful. Thanks for everyone for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.